Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me. We talk about faith and politics and all kinds of topics that really matter in our culture. So if you're tired of all the screamers out there taking all the oxygen out of the room and you want to join us and taking some of that space back, you'll love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host. So grateful to have a place to talk about faith and politics and big ideas in our culture with all kinds of interesting folks, accomplished folks of goodwill in good faith, like the one we are having today with Rick Wilson. Rick Wilson is a renowned Republican political strategist and infamous negative ad maker, getting a start on Connie Mack's 1930 World Series champion. No, excuse me. <laughs> it was another Connie Mack. <laughs> His grandfather. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It was the 88 Senate campaign for Connie Mack III, I believe, mm-hmm. and also on President George H.W. Bush's campaign that year. Since that time, he's been the key advisor to political candidates, super PACs, state parties, and the national campaign committees. Rick is also a writer, speaker, and commentator who regularly appears on national news networks, including CNN and MSNBC, shows such as Real Time with Bill Maher, and has had columns published in the Daily Beast, the Washington Post, Politico, Rolling Stone, USA Today, The Hill, and one of my favorites, The Bulwark, among others. Rick is also the author of Everything Trump Touches Dies, <laughs> a New York Times number one bestseller, and Running Against the Devil, which was actually really prescient, came out in January of 2020. But today he is appearing on Talk of Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Rick Wilson, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing? Glad to be with you today. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I wanted to start kind of early on in your formative years. I've read that your parents were both liberal Democrats before they became Republicans. They were. I was curious when and why their views started to shift and how your own political views were shaped early on. Well, look, I, I think that, you know, the great way to contextualize me is the day before I was born, my mother, who was a young Democrat, went to the rally that John F. Kennedy gave at Al Lang Field in Tampa, Florida, pregnant out to here. There's a picture of her uh, with me pregnant out to here at that event, you know, shaking hands. The next day I popped out and the next day, exactly 24 hours later, JFK was killed. Oh, wow. So it, it's it's sort of a sort of tells you the political moment they grew up in post-war classic boomers, you know, and that I grew up in. And there's a there's a, a demographer once said he goes, the baby boom ended the moment JFK died in a, in a meaningful way. It changed. That was when the world sort of flipped uh, the sense of what it was. And so I was born exactly on that weird baby boom X cusp, like to the minute. And they were, you know, again, they were liberal Democrats. But I will I will say, like a lot of folks, the economic troubles of the 70s, I mean, they didn't affect us as much. We, we were very fortunate. But the economic troubles and the sort of sense of drift and the sort of departure in that post-Vietnam era from some pride in, a, in the country I think had a big impact on them and many other people. I mean, when I was when I was in my teenage years, 
you know, and people underestimate the, the impact this had on, the, on my generation. You know, the sense that Jimmy Carter was a weak president, and maybe in retrospect, we you know, looked at that in more context, but that sense at that moment that he was a weak president and that the Iran hostage crisis and the economic crisis fused together in one moment. And Reagan presented something that we hadn't had in a president since JFK, which was likability. And I think that caught them up in that moment. Um, and then look, they were liberal Democrats in terms of race issues and social matters. They, my dad was always a fiscal conservative, but back then you had a Democratic Party that was chock full of fiscal conservatives and, and chock full of defense conservatives. So, you know, I think that that shift that they went through and that shift that my generation went through where the Republican Party of that era became a different creature from the Nixonian image, which, you know, in a strange way, Nixon had been the dominant face of the Republican Party basically since Eisen, the end of Eisenhower. Through the beginning of Reagan, he had been like the image of the Republicans was Nixon. Yeah. And so, you know, that's a hard, it's a hard cultural thing to be the party of Nixon when you, after, you know, you see what happened to Nixon. So uh, that, that shift in their, in their politics and their ideology um, was pretty explicable. And 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 pretty uh, understandable. Yeah, yeah. Now, you know, it makes me wonder. Looking back at um, the most recent DNC in 2020, and seeing speakers like Colin Powell and mm -hmm. uh, former Governor Whitman, who was also a cabinet member, um, other speakers who maybe don't identify. Or, uh, rest in peace, Colin Powell, but don't identify necessarily as Democrats, but certainly you could say uh, have fiscal uh, conservative tendencies, maybe socially libertarian tendencies. It makes me wonder if if that part of the tent, the Democratic tent is is expanding and and given the the, the Republican parties where it's come, if if those if that if that water is shifting at all, or am I being too optimistic about all that? Well, look, the old rule of politics is you you don't win by subtraction, you win by addition. Yeah. I have long contended that, and as, as look, I've done races in 38 states. I have been around the, I've been around the wheel. The idea that this country is largely center-right is something I've seen experientially. And I think one of the great, down notes of the Democratic Party for them has been this sort of abiding belief that the country is ideologically homogenous. And that if you're going to be a part of the Democratic Party in North Carolina, you have to be exactly the same as a Democrat in, in Los Angeles. If you're going to be a Democrat in, you know, if you're going to try to win as a Democrat in Texas, you have to be exactly like a Democrat in New York. And that is a that is a dead end. It's a box canyon for the Democrats because the states are different. They do demand different things of their elected representatives, which is as a country that is ideologically diverse, it's like the one area of diversity that they can't seem to quite process appropriately. Because God love Beto O'Rourke in Texas, but <laughs> but 
Greg Abbott is going to beat his head in on the gun issue. And you know, a lot of the people are going to go, are going to, are going to listen to that and nod their heads. Hispanic Democrats. Right. In the Rio Grande Valley. Right. Who have a totally different view of firearms than, than metropolitan Democrats in Denver, Colorado or, or Seattle. I've heard you talk about Beto, a missed opportunity there. I mean, if Beto doesn't spend the next however many months, six months talking about failed power plants and now with, you know, fruit and vegetables riding on Freeze the- in the dark, starve in the summer. Yeah. I mean, that's that's as that's as easy as it can be. And, and God love him. The guy's a, a terrific natural candidate. OK, he's he is he is a guy with a lot of star power. He has a lot of presence. He has every gift under the sun. But again, this is one of those things where you've got to recognize that some states are, or most states are very different. In Florida, I hate to tell my Democratic friends this, my Bernie bros this, but socialism has a really bad brand in South Florida, among Cubans and among Venezuelans. It's not because they're all right-wing Republicans. They're right-wing Republicans because socialism has a really bad brand. And they think of socialism not as universal health care, but as the secret police knocking on the door and dragging their dad away. They think of socialism as, as lavish corruption run by a, you know, Caudillo style police state. This is not, and, and, you know, I've, I've often said this, that Biden could have done a lot better in Florida if he had gone to Miami, given a speech, stood in the middle of the Caliocho and said, Fidel Castro was a monster who should burn in hell forever. But everybody worries that you're going to that you're going to alienate alienate the hyper progressive wing of the party who still believe in the, you know, dorm room socialism, as I call it. And it becomes difficult for them to unhitch themselves from what they think they would like to have the world look like to what it actually looks like. Yeah. Yeah, no, I've seen it here recently. I had a conversation with Mike Madrid, who you used to work with, and Chuck Rocha. Sure, yeah. And those guys know Latino politics. But, you know, if, if you read Mike's recent piece in the New York Times, I made the mistake of reading the comments section. And it was a lot oh, of uh, folks who identify as, as Democrats who just are basically saying, I don't like the information that you're telling me. <laughs> you know, right. I want to believe something else and, and, and sort of force uh, certain messages uh, d- despite the the individual uh, the individual uh, pieces of demographics that they're taking, as if everyone you know everyone belongs in the Bronx in in AOC's district. I had a great focus group experience about uh, two years ago, and we asked a group of Hispanic voters in South Florida, "How many of you use the term Latin X to refer to yourself?" <laughs> and every person at the table was like fuck out of here yeah Come right on. what <laughs> what what and, and it, it was so disconnected from their lives and yeah. so disconnected from their reality and so disconnected from everything except this sort of edge of the of the progressive culture space where they think that kind of thing is a meaningful act of liberation in some way and and you know, I, I'm a I'm a practical operator in the real world of actual politics, and so I, I I try to give people direct and honest counsel about things like that. And you know, it was in the top ten, you know, dumbest goddamn things I've ever seen. 
And again, it is a cultural misread. One of the things, if you grew up in Florida, as I did, you will end up with an understanding that of the 20 or so Hispanic ethnic groups and, and countries of origin that are represented in Florida politics in any meaningful way, that there are vast differences between Miami Cubans and between Tampa Cubans and between Venezuelans in Dade County and Venezuelans in Broward County and Dominicans and Mexicans and, and the Guatemalan community. And it breaks down in all these small war ways. But one thing they all have is their own sense of national pride. So when you say Latinx, you're erasing them. You're doing exactly what you accuse so many times correctly, by the way, yeah. the white power structure of doing, which is erasing their identity. And it's just a maddening kind of thing. And, and because, look, I believe America is the classic and only truly propositional nation. It is the one country where you, you come here, you sign in, you sign up, you do the right things, become a citizen. And it does not matter where you're from or what your story was or where your family is from or who oppressed them or who you oppressed, you become an American. And I think we're in a very dangerous moment in this country for racial politics because the Republicans would like to make being an American essentially propositional to being white suburban Protestants. Yeah. And it's, it's, I, think it, I think it's a scary moment because it's the, it's the dark mirror inverse of the sort of slightly pathetic dorm room identity politics that Democrats tend to play. Right, right. I, there's a part of me that I, I think the Democrats are falling right into that trap by um, playing. Oh, yeah. they're, they're playing into it, you know, by talking to a fellow like me who happens to be lighter skinned uh, that I, and I go to church and. I then get right. put into a bucket. I find myself uh, being on the defensive of why do all you people Trump this and Trump that? And I said, wait a second, just because I go to church, it doesn't mean that I'm a white nationalist. I'm a white Christian nationalist. So there is this falling into a trap of prejudice of another sort. But I, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about your own background. You, I've heard you say you're a part of the machinery that built the Republican Party of today. So first, I, if you could define what the hell the Republican Party of today is, and in what it ways is the greatest campaign winning machine in all history? Yeah. So <laughs> which you helped build. <laughs> yeah. And look at what it got me. <laughs> um, no, look, I, the, the Republican Party is it is a culture. That a lot of guys in my generation who worked either for or around Lee Atwater and Carl Rove and a bunch of other of the old guard learned one critical lesson from the first time you ever started doing a campaign. Just win. Just win. Get to the goal line. Just win, baby. Nothing else mattered. Nothing else was of consequence. You would be punished for failure only if you didn't try every goddamn thing in the book. Yeah. And so that culture and particularly in my segment, which was ad making and narrative crafting and the, the sort of the sort of era where where the dominant modality of political communication was television. OK, I mean, look, 
the dominant modality of, of, of politics has shifted over time from essentially the Roman era of electoral politics, which was, you know, flawed, but there was an electoral process up until the advent of radio, we essentially communicated with voters by either direct personal contact or in a limited way through, through printed material. Radio changed the ball game for 20 or, 20 or 25 years. Television changed the ball game from say 1949 through 2007. Okay. And, and by, by television, I subsume broadcast, cable, and terrestrial radio. Okay. Um, <clears throat> electronic media 1.0, basically. Okay. Now, as we shifted into the digital terrain where campaigns get mediated, and because there was this enormous explosion of outlets and venues by which messages could be transmitted, the good part cost of production went down, cost of distribution, except in the old, in the old systems, went way down. Um, but it demanded faster responses, more agile and smarter and more, and more uh, impactful responses. And the Republicans are better at that than the Democrats are for two big reasons. One, Whenever there's an emergent technology, two industries will immediately embrace it. The porn industry and the Republican <laughs> Party. Okay? I mean this. I'm not kidding. They will immediately jump into whatever technological innovation is going to help them win better. And it, it is a party, lest your listeners think that this party is full of mouth-breathing bubbas sitting in their moldy trailers. There's a lot of them. It is also full of guys who are PhD behavioral psychologists and math geniuses and stats guys and pollsters and analysts and data folks who have built the largest repository of voter behavior data in the history of mankind. And they use it with enormous effect to raise money, to communicate messages, and most importantly in this day and age, to cognitively isolate Republican voters from outside information. We used to think we were, we were when, I was a, when I was a younger man, I'm 58 years old now. So in politics, like I'm a million in politics because dog year effect, right? <laughs> Our team was one of the first to embrace going to do digital editing. We spent a lot of money buying Avid machines back when they were you know, this highly risky early technology we yeah. jumped into that so we could make more ads faster. We did. We started matching up voter information to our ad strategy in the 90s. And it was still clunky and difficult and, you know, one step up from punch card computers. And, you know, but it it was something that started to give us greater granularity on targeting ads and messages to voters. The Republican Party is not, does not give a shit about any ideological premise at all. Okay. None at all. You hear a lot about critical race theory. They don't give a fuck about critical race theory. They don't even know what it is. Yeah. What they do care about is that white working class voters hear critical race theory and they think, oh God, those people are coming to get our, our jobs. 
they're going to brainwash our kids. When you hear them talk about things like socialism, the average Republican voter you know, is already deeply in a, in a deep relationship with socialism. They just don't want to admit it. Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, disability. Now, why did Trump never touch those issues? Why did he say, I'm not touching those things? Even though Paul Ryan had a hard on to do it, every other Republican in Washington at the time was like, let's go reform, let's security. Trump recognized from the numbers, he would be hurting his own voters. Right. He would be cutting into his own base if he did that. And because he was, look, Trump's not a smart guy, but he has a kind of feral cunning. He recognized that, that, that those kind of appeals where people don't understand them, but do emotionally react to them are enormously important. Democrats believe, and I'll tell you, one of the origin stories of the Lincoln Project was one night after a debate uh, early in the primary season, Elizabeth Warren trots out to CNN and she says, this was a great debate. We talked about policy all night and never mentioned Donald Trump. <laughs> Missed the mark. The elephant, if you will, in the room. And so, and I've written a lot about this in my books and elsewhere, the belief that policy wins elections is so deeply ingrained in the Democratic Party's DNA that no matter how many counterexamples and counterfactuals you show them, you'll say, policy doesn't win elections. And they'll say, but policy will win the election. No, no, policy won't win the election. Policy will win the election. And our 600-page healthcare plan is what's going to change the tide of history. And as I've said before, you put out a 600-page healthcare plan or a 600-page climate plan. Now, I'm not going to do it myself because I'm not going to go read that plan. I'm just not going to do it. Yeah. I, I have a certain limited number of years left in my life. I'm not going to waste them on, on a 600-page policy plan. But I will put 10 nerds on. And I will find 10 things in there that those 10 nerds will find. Oh, yeah. In the category we call scaring the shit out of grandma. Right. The, the way that they so, just did the uh, Supreme Court, uh, of course. The, the, the process, they found something and twisted it up and, and of course. made it into something else that's really, really scary. And she, you know... Uh, Katanji. You ask most Americans what the Green New Deal has in it. No idea. I'll tell you, it bans airplane travel and meat. <laughs> because those things in there, they literally were so goddamn stupid. They put in there to transition America from a meat-based economy or symbol. I'm like, every word you put down on paper in a, in a policy plan is going to be used against you. It will hurt you much more than it will ever help you. And I, I have found over the years, again, it is, it is something that is almost genetically wired into Democratic candidates and consultants to think, I have to have a plan about, you know, the Arctic National Wildlife Reserve. I'm like, you're running for Congress in Missouri. Yeah. What, what, what is wrong with you? You know, that, those sort of things, the country, uh, to loop back to sort of the beginning of this conversation, the country being a largely center-right country is not as moved by sweeping policy declarations, and especially because some of them are disconnected with where the voters in the states are. Yeah. Kind of fundamentally. Yeah. And, you know, we talk about this a lot. And, and again, 
when I say this, I say this as a guy who's giving you the political ground truth, not my position on the matters. It's just reality. But if I tell you that when Democrats say, why are we losing the Rio Grande Valley in Texas? My question to them is always, where do they, where do they go to church? Where, 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 do those, where do those Gen 1, Gen 2 American citizens who are of Mexican descent now go to church? Ain't the Catholic church anymore. It's Pentecostal. Hmm. They may be Democrats on paper, but they are much different than standard issue Democrats when it comes to a whole cluster of issues, particularly abortion, which, you know, there's a, there's a knock-on effect from the Catholic church in that regard. But, but the, the rapid growth of Pentecostal Christianity in, in the Rio Grande Valley is an unaccountable thing in the minds of a lot of these Democratic consultants. And I, and I, I, I beg them to look at the reality on the ground. Yeah. And I, you know, I tell a similar story about Florida. A few years back, we took, because the Democrats were revving up to run basically a statewide race with Andrew Gillum, and they were going to put gun control front and center. Now, I'm going to say it because I'm, I'm a fifth generation Floridian. I know my state. I could have told you this without studying the, the question. But I pulled the Florida Concealed Carry Database. Okay? It's, it's anonymized, but we pulled the number. About 1.7 million concealed carry permits. We matched it against the Florida voter file and did some analytic voodoo in it. And the places where people were getting concealed carry permits told us that about 38% of those people were either African-American or Hispanic. And they lived in poor areas. These aren't people going out to buy a Glock because they want to shoot somebody up. They went, they went out to buy a Glock to protect their family. And they derived out of this that about, so 35% or so of the people that were buying or getting concealed carry permits in Florida were Democrats. Yeah. So they're out talking about banning concealed carry, banning semi-automatic guns. And whether or not that's meritorious, and I, I, we, that's a separate conversation, it's politically disastrous because it gives Republicans a way to go into those communities that they would not have otherwise and go, hey, they want to leave you at risk. They want to defund the police and take your gun. Where are you going to go? And so, you know, the, 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 the Republican Party has been very talented at using that kind of, of cold-eyed analytical insight to win. Yeah. Look, I helped elect a Republican governor in Vermont four times. And he was pro-choice and pro-climate change regulation and everything else. And a lot of Republicans were like, how dare you? But the question was, do you want to win? Do you want to win? Or not? You want yeah. to win. Yeah. I hope you're enjoying our conversation with Rick Wilson. I certainly am. I don't know if you could tell. It's a blast. I just love his candor and his experience and his expertise. And I wanted to take just a moment to tell you about another group that I've learned about that come right from his neck of the woods. They're based in Tallahassee, Florida. They're doing some great work, including a podcast that I wanted to let you know about. I've really been enjoying it. So if you enjoy our respectful and inquisitive approach to exploring politics and religion, this other podcast, we just think you'll love it. It's called Village Squarecast. 
They call it the podcast your mother warned you about, <laughs> which I love, because they take on the topics you're not supposed to discuss in polite company. Politics, religion, and race between people who don't look or think alike with respect, friendship, even laughter. Right in our lane. I love it. So over 15 years, the Village Square has hosted hundreds of gatherings with tens of thousands of people in bars, in churches, and even across 100 continuous tables in the middle of a downtown street. And now they bring you their favorite conversations from inspiring leaders to cool people exhausted by the political rancor and looking for a better way. Check it out on Village Squarecast, wherever you listen to podcasts. And here's an insider tip. If you especially enjoy looking at political issues through a faith lens, you've got to check out their God Squad series, where they bring together various faith leaders to explore the most pressing issues of our time. Just look for God Squad in the episode title, and it's on the main Village Squarecast feed. So Village Squarecast, Squarecast is one word, wherever you listen to podcasts, Village Squarecast. Love them. Check them out. So, so I, I have so much I want to cover here, <laughs> and I know we're, we're short on time. So let me just ask you a little bit about, you, you've been very, very successful. You could be doing a lot more hunting, fishing, building airplane engines or whatever it is that you do. But I, I wanted to relate for, for our listeners a, um, a conversation that you had. You related it, I think, in the paperback edition of, of the first book. Mm-hmm. Um, the conversation ended with, uh, this, this lady that you had encountered in an airport in Charlotte. Yeah. She said, I go to junior college. I have an apartment. I have to work here and another job, but I do, I like to work. I'm going to vote because I passed my citizenship. And the way you described your reaction, I, I think is really important. You said at this point, my normally articulate tongue is tied tight by her story. She gets it. She gets out her phone and smiles and says, now I need a selfie with my famous friend hugs me, selfie, and off walks the best American I saw all that day, greater in soul, spirit, and goodness than the can. <laughs> you're, you have an endless way of describing the uh, the, the uh, uh, disgraced ex-president. The Trump was the, yes. Yeah, the cancerous lump currently occupying, or at that time, occupying the Oval. Yes. So you want to know why I fight? She's why I fight. Uh, so can you tell us, you know, so, so you won 2020, arguably, you know, in, in four key states, that, that Bannon line, which I want to ask you a little bit yep. more about for the upcoming elections, because you're expanding that Bannon line, but you 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 helped win those four key states by yes. less than the Bannon line. So yes. why are you still fighting now? Well, we set out to do three things in 2020. Number one goal was to beat Donald Trump. We viewed him and still view him as an existential threat to the republic. Um, for all the articulable reasons, and that people have heard me say them a thousand times. Number two was to, to knock down some of his enablers. We participated in a total of 11 Senate races. We won four of those, which you know was a pretty good batting average. I'll take two seats in Georgia, yeah. uh, uh, Colorado, uh, and Arizona. I'll take those anytime as wins. Would we have liked to have done better in other states? Absolutely. But, you know, we, our number one mission, we spent about, I think about 12% of our budget on the Senate stuff. The rest was on presidential voter advocacy. And we went after the, you know, those enablers as best we could. The third thing was to knock down this authoritarian movement of Trumpism. And frankly, 
that was a goal, but it was a stretch goal. We didn't get to it. We were fighting the, we were fighting the, 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 the big house fire and we couldn't fight the, the shed. But the virus lived on after the election. And especially, and believe me, there was a day after the election in, in December when I really was like, you know what I can do now? I can go travel. I can go rebuild old airplanes. I can go hunting. I can go fishing. I can go fly my airplane around and, and, and drill holes in the sky and spend time with my kids and knock wood grandkids hopefully soon and all that stuff. And I realized on 1-6, it was never going to change. Mm. That, that the political incentive structure that has been built by Fox, Facebook, Steve Bannon and the Republican instrument, and Trump himself, that, it, that the transformation of the GOP, it was not a party that was sleeping and waiting to awaken from its nightmare. It was a party that had become the nightmare. And it's what they wanted. It, it, one six was their id walking out on stage and saying, you know, this whole voting and majority rule thing, it's overrated. And I'll tell you why a lot of those Republican senators and House members that day were very scared. They were scared it was gonna that they could be hurt, but they were also scared it was gonna succeed. Wait, I don't understand. How are you making that connection? A lot of those guys were were were, were terrified of the mob running through the building, even the right wingers, right? Right. Yeah, because they know that mobs do what mobs do. But they were also scared that that they were gonna actually be the handmaidens of overthrowing a free and fair democratic election because it, it, it let's let's do a, a sort of weird counterfactual let's say that that officer had not led away the mob from Mitt Romney right what do you think that mob would have done to Mitt Romney or Nancy Pelosi could have ki literally killed them they would have killed them right then and there yeah that would have led to the senate in chaos and crisis they would have suspended the count the idea that the mob could come anywhere, hurt anyone, get anybody would have been pendant in their minds at all times. And they would have, I, I believe, but for the grace of, uh, grace of God, that one moment, that one providential moment where Oscar Carter led them away, we would have seen something, a very different outcome to the 2020 election. Uh, on that day, we would have seen, they would have frozen the count, they would have redone it, they would have been so terrified that Trump could send people to murder them. Um, and look, a lot of them still do feel that. The secret heart of many, many Republicans is 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 based in fear. It's not love, it's fear. So, so that explains, I, I live in California, it was California 25, it'll be California uh -huh. 27. Mike Garcia won by 333 votes, less than one tenth of one percent of the vote. Right. Is does that explain why he voted that very night to try to overturn Pennsylvania and then Arizona and then, you know, every subsequent vote that he's taken? I, I can only this is the purplest of districts. I can only explain it by what you had just described. Fear of the mob, fear of the Jacobins. And, and look, their fear of the mob. Yeah, the, it is. It is the, you know. There are a lot of analogies to Trumpism from that day forward that are very much like in the directory period of the French Revolution. 
And I know everybody's like loves to use the, the World War II and, and Nazi analogies, but there are many others in history that work. And in the directory period, everyone was afraid, no matter what their original you know, perspective on the, on the revolution was, that they could be denounced, that they could be the target. The mob could come for them. And the mob that day just barely, just barely prevented a, a different outcome. You know, just did the, mob, the mob's failure that they just barely prevented a different outcome. And so that fear is very deep inside of them. And look, a few of them would have loved it if it worked. Would have loved it. Cruz, Hawley, Cotton, Scott, Debbie Dumbass down there, uh, uh, Tammy, or uh, not Tammy, uh, the, the Alabama woman, um, Tommy Tuberville. They would have loved it. They would have run along with it. They would have had a, a ball with it. And, and look, their main propaganda organ, Fox, would have also loved it. Because look, Fox went from that day being, this is shocking, this is horrible, to why did the election get stolen? Yeah, very quickly. Very quickly. So, it, you know, what's interesting about that moment in time for you personally and for your colleagues is that you could have gone in another direction personally and stayed, still stayed on this mission uh, because the Lincoln Project was going through some a couple of pretty major scandals. Now, Reed came on last year much closer to the time that uh, the organization sure. was was dealing with that. So I, I'm happy to let you address what happened, how you dealt with it. But we only got a limited amount of time, so there's other pressing matters that I want to ask you about. But do you want to do you want to address what that was and how you fellows address that? We had we were an organization that grew very quickly. Yeah, we we were. It was a very ad hoc organization because when we started the Lincoln Project, we had no idea what would happen. We had no idea that one morning Donald Trump would wake up with a heart on and go, oh, I, got, I hate these guys on Twitter, <laughs> you know, and our, the, the speed of our growth and the, and the diverse or the dispersed nature of the campaign was something that, you know, led to some of the events that happened with Weaver in particular, Yeah, which, you know, and I, I, I've made this point to people before. I have met John Weaver one day in my whole life, one time, never worked with John before the Lincoln Project, and I don't live in D.C., where, you know, John's life, secret life as a gay man was, was apparently a known thing, wasn't known to me. And look, part of what you saw last year was a natural reaction in the political immune system of the country on the left and the right to seeing that we had been so highly effective, that we had, done, we had done it so differently. A lot of our critics on the progressive side uh, were like, give us the money for our candidates and not for you guys who, who do these crazy ads that we don't like. <laughs> you know, the market went where the market went. Yeah. And it was a moment where we were focused on the mission and landing the plane and focused on, on defeating Donald Trump. Were we great HR managers because of that? No. Now, what have we spent the last year doing? We've gotten rid of people um, like John Weaver. Yeah. We have reformed the organization. We are the most transparent super PAC in the country. We're the only super PAC that's put out an actual financial statement beyond the FEC report that shows people how and where we spent our money. 
And we spent, you know, about 85% of it on direct voter communication, whether that was digital or television or other outreach programs, which is a overhead ratio that is comparable to any other super PAC. We went out and we hired a, an outside law firm that went through 360,000 emails and communications wow. to look at what happened with the Weaver situation. It was an independent organization. And believe me, if I'd had control over it, I would have stopped it 30 seconds after it started because basically it froze everything we were doing. Yeah. And, you know, we had to, we had to work through that problem and we did, and we faced it and look, we're an imperfect organization then. Sure. We're still an imperfect organization. Now who among us is not a cynic in some way. However, we have built a team that is incredibly creative, incredibly dedicated to this mission. We will always have people sniping at us from the right. You know why we took away their plaything. We took away Donald Trump and they hate us for that reason. In a, it, with an intensity that I cannot truly comprehend. There's nothing I hate in this world the way they hate me and the way they hate the LP. But, you know, we had a, we had a, we had a rough go, but, you know, hard times make strong people. Yeah. And we strengthened the organization. We, you know, we built in a lot more accountability. We were always pretty accountable. We thought we built in more, you know, we hired this, we, like I said, we hired a, 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 an outside firm that was totally independent. They went through top to bottom everything we'd ever done. Yeah, yeah. It was that fellow uh, military background. I forgot his name off the top of my head. That did a full audit, and then yeah, we had a full audit, and and we we, we have, our books have been gone through, our personnel records have been gone through, our emails have been gone through. We have come out of this. You know, are people going to complain about how we do our work? Fine, let them. But they cannot complain that this organization is somehow corrupt or systemically bad or that we're, you know, and, and look, I will tell you this, the attacks on all of us and on our kids and our families that came from the things that, that were revealed about John Weaver, I would not wish on my worst enemy. Mm. I would not wish on Donald Trump. Oh, that's saying a lot. Because when you, when you, when you spend a lot of time on the Fox space, um, and you get called a pedophile every single day. Yeah. Yeah. And you have people confront you in grocery stores or Home Depot or on the street or in an airport um, and scream at you because that culture tells them that everybody who opposes them is a pedophile. It's a shocking feeling. However, it also tells me that the work we do has had such a deep impact that they have to keep up the drumbeat on us. Right. They have to keep up the attacks and they will, they will, they will almost, I can assure you if, if LP is around 20 years from now, for whatever reason, there will still be people on the right who will say, what about this? What about that? You know what? When we make mistakes, we clean them up. We're, we're transparent about them. We put it out there in public. We deal with things that we can deal with. Is it fun? No, but do we have a job that's bigger than our comfort? Absolutely. So tell, tell me about that job. I mean, a lot of folks remember the ad in Times Square. A lot of folks remember some of the stuff that you put out online. Really effective, especially effective at bugging the crap out of Donald Trump and his kids. <laughs> I mean, people think that is a superficial thing, but it is not. Because we identified 
as one of the critical valences of the Trump organization, his psychological weakness and distrust of any member of his staff who was making money or who was getting more famous or who was in the spotlight or who he didn't have complete control over. We push those valences in order to make him do things that hurt his campaign. Yeah. So when we do ads that are what we call audience of one, people are like, well, you should be spending $40 million in Wisconsin. Well, if I spend $20,000 making an ad and $15,000 putting it up in Mar-a-Lago and he fires Brad Parscale as campaign manager and paralyzes his campaign for four weeks, <laughs> I'll take that ROI anytime. All day, every day. Anytime. Now, a lot of things that people didn't see Look, the, the Lincoln Project's media operation is like an iceberg. Up on the surface, you see all the viral ads, the hot, wild, million-view ads that people go, oh, my God, did they really do that? That tip of that iceberg underneath it is a lot of other content that's going out into the states. And it's going after the Bannon line voters. And for folks who don't know what the Bannon line is, Steve Bannon, who hates us with a robust passion, and the feeling is mutual. Um, and by the, by the way, tell me why it just... While you're talking about the Bannon line, why do you see green shoots there? Why is it going from three to eight to eight to 11? I think you said. I'll, I'll tell you right now. Okay. Sure. I'll tell you right now. So Steve said if they can take three to 8% of the vote from Republicans, Trump's going to lose. And we were like, okay. Challenge accepted. <laughs> Hold my beer. <laughs> um, and so we went after in the States. So a lot of our ads that folks didn't see on the national, you know, viral, you know, news media coverage and, and social media coverage were talking to suburban voters in Brown County, Wisconsin about COVID. And they were talking to, you know, narrow slices of voters about the inhumanity of Trump's border policy in Arizona. And so we went out there and we we use a scalpel to carve out little audiences and hit them with media. And again, a lot of it's folks, stuff that folks haven't really like paid attention to or seen because it was digital outreach. And that Bannon line of three to 8%, weirdly, uh, the way we're modeling it right now is slightly expanded for two reasons. The first is there's a cluster of issues that the same demographic of voters in the Bannon line are more sensitive to than straight MAGA voters. They don't like the LGBTQ stuff that they see in the States. They don't like the, the violence of the one six folks. And there's still a meaningful number of Republican women who are pro-choice. They tend to be much more affluent. They tend to be more educated. They tend to be 40 plus but they're out there and they're real. And so offsetting the old Bannon line number with a, with a little bit of extra squeeze here, we think that there are some more addressable targets in the 2022 cycle than there were before. Now, is it a movement sufficient to break the back of Trumpism more broadly? No, of course not. But it is a movement where we're going to offer them a temporary harbor to say, listen, you're a good person. We know you don't agree with this stuff. You don't like the LGBTQ stuff. You don't like the book banning. You don't like the cruelty. You don't like the crazy QAnon stuff. 
you don't have to marry the Democratic Party. You just have to stay at the Airbnb, as Reid likes to say. And so we think that list is, or that that window has grown a little bit, not tremendously, but a little bit. The the hard Republicans are harder than they were, than ever before. And, and some of the growth in the hard side has come out of the middle, and some of the growth on our side has come out of the middle. The middle's getting scrunched. So are you as pessimistic as the prevailing wisdom seems to be about the Democrats losing the House, or do you see things that other folks aren't talking about? Big thing that folks aren't talking about, as my colleague Joe Trippi points out, is redistricting went a lot better, Knockwood because of Mark Elias and a lot of legal, legal pros who really laid in on it and really worked hard to ensure that we didn't get as shafted as we could have been on redistricting. So that gives us essentially a pretty even playing field going into 2022, just on the mechanical voter registration splits in the districts. The Democrats have a window of time still, probably for another 60 days, where if, if they move quickly and smartly, we can do some things that lower gas prices quickly, because that's something voters get every day experientially. They feel it. You know, if you have to fill up your car to go to work, you're pissed about it. Yeah. You, you see it every day. And, and, and by the way, no bullshit infrastructure plan and no, no health care plan and no job training plan is going to make you not pissed off if you're a suburban mom slapping, you know, 120 bucks into the, into the family truckster. Yeah. You're going to be angry about it. And there's still some time to do that. And the Republicans are picking in the primaries, some of the most edge case <laughs> folks yeah. under the sun. And that's going to be a blast. I mean, look, in Georgia, the Republicans have gone all in on Herschel Walker, who is a guy with a, and I mean this without, I'm, I'm not being facetious here. Herschel Walker has serious mental problems. He, he, has, he has tremendously serious and dangerous mental problems. And I wish he would get help. He's not getting help in this race because the MAGA imperative of Trump liking Herschel Walker outweighs everything else. J.D. Vance has a good shot now of picking up the Ohio nomination. The more the insanity rises, Dr. Oz is in play in Pennsylvania. The more the insanity rises, the easier it is for groups like ours and for Democratic candidates to talk to voters that are in that Bannon line area, to talk to voters who can be reached, who can be touched, who can be communicated with, who can be given a, a rational perspective on why just this once sit this one out or just this once pull the trigger for a Democrat. Um, and there will be a portfolio of issues varying in the states on how to do that. And Democrats can also choose not to play the culture war battle. That's the final point I would make on that. They can choose not to be dumb about culture war. So selfishly, I got to ask, I think you have about 25 House races on your list. I'm hoping that California 27 is on that list. We're thinking about California 27. Okay. All right. We got so we're, we're, we've got an eye on that race. Okay. I'm not I'm not promising you we're going to spend anything uh, eye popping there yet. Yeah. But we will be watching for the breakout critical house races in the country, and that is one we've got our eye on. Well, I was trying to uh, just a little inside baseball here. Uh, my good friends are folks that you worked with to create a lot of those ads. I come from the entertainment advertising industry, a sure. lot of whom 
donated to Lincoln Project and donated time and talents to Lincoln Project yeah. in the last election. So I'm talking to them about getting involved in their neighboring uh, district here. So last question is, you got it. Do you have any questions for me? You know what? I, I really like the concept of the pod that you're doing. I think it's I think it's got a you know, we didn't touch a lot on faith stuff today, but I do think that underpins a lot of both the strengths and the weaknesses of American society right now. And I think talking through it, you know, as as, as famously argumentative as I am, <laughs> I think I think people still want to talk through things sometimes and, and and not just, you know, scream louder. Yeah. So I think you're doing a great, a great service and uh, appreciate the opportunity to come on today. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We're trying to talk to folks from my church uh, or, you know, Christian friends that I have, whether there are folks who can be persuaded about the, this cancer that's really metastasized and that we're placing, it's a new form of idolatry. We're placing these other priorities and other idols in front of what our real priorities should be. So we're trying to have those conversations in constructive ways in both the political as well as a the theological realm. I really appreciate you uh, you coming in. So let us know, how, how can we find you, Lincoln Project, and all the great work that you're doing? Uh, I am on the Twitter machine at the Rick Wilson, and the Lincoln Project is Project Lincoln on, on Twitter. Uh, also, our, link, our website, lincolnproject.us. Uh, you can see our content. You can see our, our streaming television shows, you can see our podcast, you can see our ad content, you get involved in our organization called The Union, jointheunion.us, which is a huge volunteer hub that's matching people with skills and 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 talents uh, and with the races they want to be involved in and the work they want to be involved in. And, you know, we will we, we will continue to fight as one Republican who used to like me and doesn't anymore. He goes, why are you guys so unkillable? So... <laughs> Well, I love the union was great when you announced it. Uh, I saw Joe Trippy came on, a, yep. a former adversary yep. who's now joined in Common Cause. It's really good encouraging. Yep. Yeah. And uh, so much good content. So we'll put all those links on the in the show notes. Really appreciate you coming in. Really appreciate Thank you, getting- Corey. I appreciate you, man. You have a great day and uh, we'll talk to you again. Sounds good. Thanks, Rick. Bye bye. All right. And as always, if you dig what we're doing here, please hit that subscribe button. Leave a review and comments wherever you get your podcasts. And tell a friend about TPNR. We're easier to recommend than ever. It's politicsandreligion.us. Politicsandreligion.us. And you can even support our program through the Patreon app on our site. Now go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect. And have a great week. Thank you for joining us today. If you dig what we're doing here, it is super easy to follow us. You can go to our site, politicsandreligion.us. That's with the and spelled out, A-N-D. Politicsandreligion.us. And we're on all the socials, at TP and R pod. You know, TP and R pod for talking politics and religion pod. And here's a big way you can support us, by becoming one of our patrons. You can even become a producer or executive producer of our program and have a lot more say in who we bring on, the kinds of questions we explore, or just help us keep the lights on. But mostly, we really appreciate you giving us a listen. So for the whole team here at Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other, thanks for hanging out with us. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam. <laughs>